Greetings and welcome to episode 7 of Lave Radio, the podcast that covers the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. As ever, I'm your host, second technician, Fozzer Forrester, and joining us in the alternative Sidewinder Broadcasting office this episode, we have, taking time out from transporting young runaway girls across the galaxy, we have Commander Thane, Chris Jarvis. Hi. Taking time out from marking his university students' coursework assignments, it's the delectable Alan Stroud. Delectable is a really weird word for you, Foz. <laughs> And eating a timeout, we have Lave Station's own miracle engineer, John Relbats. Thank you. And delectable is not a, not a different word for me. You nearly said dirty word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, welcome, everybody. Now, I know uh, last week I kind of shot us all in the foot by claiming we had nothing to talk about because Frontier Developments were on holiday. We then went on to record our longest podcast. Uh, this week, I'm not going to make that mistake. Well, there has been lots of information coming out of Frontier Developments. Uh, we've got three feature updates from Ashley. We've got two topics on the DDF, one fiction diary and one newsletter. So uh, our cup overfloweth this episode. We've done in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> every, every topic will come up and we'll just say, I haven't got an opinion on that. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, sounds fun. But before we go into that, Alan, what have you been up to? Start us off. Okay, I've uh, been doing some more Bryce work, trying to get used to the idea of, of actually being able to draw because I've never been able to draw in my life. What I've been doing for those that uh, that haven't seen the threads in the forum is I'm, I'm trying to gradually get into the state of being able to produce some decent science fiction artwork uh, that's entirely original. So I've posted a few of the um, the images that I've managed to produce up and they're gradually they're improving. I think they're, they're getting a bit better. Um, we've a way to go until I get something that I'm, I'm entirely happy with. And I do have to announce that I am the first person, I think, that's going through the artwork approval process. <laughs> so I've basically sent one of those images through Frontier to see if they are happy with it as a piece of official artwork. So um, watch this space. I'll let you know if they decide that, yes, it is good enough to be an official part of the, the whole Elite Dangerous phenomenon so after all you know the back and forth you've had and the rejection with your writing um all of a sudden you've got this whole new process of rejection (laughs) (laughs) now john what did we say about being passive aggressive (laughs) i just i just think it's you know if if some of the writers really got down before about you know having um, their work critiqued and sent back to them for corrections if they've got artwork it's just more rejection to look forward to but I mean, how else is it going to work? Because obviously some people have said that, you know, there's illustrations. Uh, and I know it was a stretch goal, wasn't it, for Dave to have some illustrations in his uh, his role-playing game. Now, if they're not going to be done by, obviously, the writers themselves, then obviously the other, the other explanation or the other way of doing it would be to let Frontier Developments do it. Now, surely they haven't got the time to start producing concept art for the, uh, the book, was Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's got to be an approval process of some kind. Um, I think... To be fair, you know, there, there is an attempt here by everybody to try and make sure that everything ties together and that we don't do anything stupid that kind of detracts from what the, you know, the main product is, which is the game. It will be interesting. I mean, you know, the, the artwork approvals process, let's remember we're in the middle of April 
and we're 11 months away from from the release so i've i've put one image in by putting one image in they get to test their approval system and i get to test their approval system and we find out how long it's going to take if it's going to be too convoluted then they're very quickly going to realize that they won't be able to get through all the information they've got to test so you know you kind of see how that that works itself out won't you so it's a suck it and see. Now, for those people that haven't yeah. uh, used Bryce, can you just quickly explain what exactly it is? Well, what Bryce is, it's a 3D rendering tool. So it's a bit like Maya or 3D Studio Max or something like that in that um, you have a complete 3D environment and you can then introduce objects into it. The nice thing with Bryce is Bryce is a, a I think it's called ray trace renderer. So effectively what it does is it, it has this, this really rich system of skins and of um, uh, of lighting effects and other bits and pieces, so you can you can effectively you can import three D objects into a scene, and then you can put them in particular positions, and you can um, you know take a picture effectively of that, and it then takes a, an absolute age to render out, but once it's rendered out, you get this really nice uh, nice sort of arranged piece of artwork which you can then you know obviously do something with the extra touch you've got is then you can animate it so you can actually turn it into video as well so i've experimented a bit with that and we're looking at some ideas with using bryce and using a couple of other things to see if um we can use some of it for the video but uh you know for the for the the low revolution film but we'll see how that how that pans out brilliant john what about you sir what have you been up to um, uh, um, okay. Um, f- well, as far as the listeners are concerned, I've been sat around on my ass doing nothing. Um, <laughs> but, um, I have been on the forums a lot. I've been reading the forums because I need to do that so I can bring any important stories to the listeners. And the news is there's not much news. <laughs> there's not much news on the forum but there seems to be quite a lot of news coming out of frontier development yeah yeah the, the, the forums is usually as usual there's some lively debate but uh i think most of it's going on on the ddf which we'll probably get to but sorry what, what do you just say chris i said you've been birthdaying it up this is true yes living the, living the large life it was my birthday on saturday um happy I'm f- birthday i'm not going to embarrass you by singing to you no, th- Again. thank you. I thought you said I'm not going to embarrass you and, and say how old you are, but uh, I'm 33, so there's a couple of years left in me. <laughs> Just a couple. Yeah. <laughs> what does that make me dead? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're on borrowed time. Uh, so entered right, into a strange yeah. sort of Logan's Run universe here. I'm mean, <laughs> counting down the years. Uh, Foz, none of these universes are strange to you. You like them all at the same time, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with my mashup stories. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just Darth Maul in Logan's Run. I'm just imagining how it was. <laughs> right, I think we're just going to leave you there, John. For myself, I've actually been uh, I've been working very hard this week. I've actually had uh, our company's uh, European conference, which was held in Malta. So I've been away all week in uh, Malta, uh, checking in on the forums from, I'd love to say from the beach side, but actually we were spending quite a lot of time doing... Uh, death by powerpoint apologies if anybody in my company is listening to this which i'm sure they're not um but it was very motivational and everybody's gone back refreshed and it was quite nice to have a week in malta all things considered but yes chris now we know what you've been up to but do you want to let us all know <laughs> okay I was hoping to give you more of a lead-in. Uh, well, I could tell everybody that, you know, in on my conference trip, I had to drive all the way back down to Heathrow Airport and back up again. And 25 minutes of that was spent delightfully listening to a brand new audio drama, which I've never heard before, which I think you could tell us a little bit more about. 
There we go. No, okay. So, um, yeah, so last week uh, I released the first episode of uh, Escape Velocity, which is the um, full cast uh, audio serial that I've been working on for a little while. And, yeah, it's been, I mean, the reception for it's actually been been wildly positive and, in fact, almost kind of more so than I might have imagined, um, given the kind of resources <laughs> that are at my command, if you like. So, yeah, I mean, you know, response to it has been really good. And interestingly, where the response to it, you know, has, has, has been more critical, it's been specific things. No one's kind of come back and said, good God, that didn't sound like an audio drama. Um, you know, people are kind of taken in by the by the effect and by the production and kind of believe in in, in what they're hearing as a, as a work of drama, which is which is enormously gratifying for me because obviously I'm doing this with it's all amateur actors. Uh, it's all me with the, you know, the minimal amount of sort of audio engineering equipment that I've got to hand and, and locations to record and that sort of thing. So, yeah, very gratifying. Um, and actually it's created, you know, something of a challenge for me because the, the first thing most people have come back and said is when's episode two? So having originally decided to do episode one as a kind of one-off pilot to test the water, people were then really keen to hear more. So I've kind of had to really sort of get my finger out and get another script written and get actors together again. The plan for the long term is obviously to be a bit more methodical about the way that we record and produce these things um, so that we're not having to do everything last minute. But yeah, I've needed to kind of get on with the rest of the series much sooner than I perhaps originally anticipated I'd need to. <laughs> so without thing. breaking i was gonna say without breaking the fourth wall how about letting us into a little bit of you know what goes into it i mean how many actors have you got how long is it actually taking you to record one episode what sort of uh mixing equipment are you using okay i'm using well in terms of the equipment that's very simple i've got a desk which i, I recently acquired which is kind of a bit like a, a sort of multi-track recorder but very specifically what i wanted was the ability to record everybody on individual channels now a lot of if you go online a lot of the multi-track recorders you can get are designed for musicians to kind of lay down tracks one at a time so even though you can do four or eight track editing on, on quite simple things you only get one or two actual audio inputs so the one i found it's the uh, the zoom r16 if anyone cares enough to go look at it and it basically gives you eight eight audio inputs at once and it just means i can plug in microphones for the different actors and have them all on their own clean channels. In terms of the actors I have access to, I'm a member of a, an amateur theatre down in Coventry, uh, the Wheat Sheaf Players, if anyone wants to check out their stuff, wheatsheafplayers.com, um, shows coming up all the time. Um, so basically, I've kind of got a circle of people that I know that I can sort of call on and, uh, and, and cast as and when. Being amateur, people kind of, you know, people's time is difficult and people's availability is difficult. So what I can say is, obviously, you know, I'm playing Commander Fane. I'm obviously available for as long as I'm doing the project. And the girl that plays May, I kind of sounded her out before we started about her commitments over the next year or so. And she's pretty happy to commit to it. So that's, you know, that's all good. And I'm just at the stage now. Like I say, episode one was kind of written with some very specific hooks in that would lead into plot threads. Uh, and episode two is kind of a natural continuation of episode one. Now I'm getting into writing episodes three onwards. Um, I'm starting to think much more deeply about the kind of story it's developing into over the course of the series. So I'm starting to stick pieces of paper to my kitchen wall again uh, and looking at all the different scenes that I kind of want to include, where they need to go, how you lead up to them, 
what actors I'm going to need when and all that kind of thing. Great stuff. So have you got a thought in your head about how long this will going to run? Yeah, I was looking at I was looking at when Elite Dangerous is out. I think my initial my, my initial feeling was I wanted to do a kind of first series, if you like, of, of Escape Velocity. Because obviously me being a person that's not involved in the sort of behind the scenes stuff um, and obviously only has access to the games so far i wanted to write something that's kind of set before elite dangerous in the sort of continuity of the games we've all had access to and played and then what i kind of wanted to do was to lead the first series up finish that and then potentially once elite dangerous is out have a think about whether to come back and do some more then based into the continuity of the game that i can get my hands on and kind of you know be a bit more informed with what i'm producing so yeah in terms of the number of episodes I don't know. I mean, there's, I think there's something like, what, 48 weeks between now and Elite Dangerous coming out. Um, yeah. And in, in the middle of that, you know, there's obviously things like holiday, there's a baby, there's Christmas, you know, all these sorts of things that, that get in the way of everything else. So I don't know. I'm just sort of, I'm looking at it. I'm working it out. I'm also, this is part of the reason I'm trying to sort of chart my slightly bigger plot for the whole series. Realistically, I want to tell it, tell the story in as many episodes as is entertaining you know i don't want to do this thing that sometimes you can kind of feel with longer series on tv where you know they've got a 24 episode format and as you're going through the series and watching you think well there's you know there's four or five episodes here that are really just filler um yeah i I kind of i want to look at my plot and i want to work out which events are absolutely necessary which episodes we really need to see what gives us enough space for the characters to develop and have some kind of you know, you have to allow time for the drama to unfold and for for the characters to have their have their time. So really, it'll be it'll be based around that. Would it? Just as a suggestion, I don't know. Would it be better or um, to do it in series with a smaller number of episodes, and so then you just gauge it on a per series basis the call for more. I guess. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about in order to kind of pay off the sort of tricky balance between ongoing the kind of ongoing mystery. So there are things that you want to be happening where you're constantly kind of, it's almost like this mystery in the background. But at the same time, you don't want to create a serial where no story ever gets resolved because then it kind of changes and becomes a soap. It just becomes this thing about these characters flying around week to week and nothing ever gets resolved. So one of the things I'm looking at in terms of charting the plot is which storylines I want to wrap up in, in a kind of three or four episode cycle, which will then, you know, you, you, you know, you could potentially do a run of six episodes and call that a self-contained story. And then there would be certain elements that would feed over into another six episodes. You know, I, I could do it that way. But at the same time, there would always be plot that leads all the way over the whole thing and, and kind of keeps driving the drama forward. You could do it in a couple of different ways. If you have a show like Doctor Who or Star Trek or Stargate, you know, your drama, each story is driven by the fact that your characters effectively have a reason and a mandate to go to a new location. And of course, we have that in Elite. You could say, I could write this series about a character who is always flying to different planets. And every time he flies to a planet, he kind of gets involved in something. And that's very much the sort of, you know, like I say, Quantum Leap, Doctor Who kind of way of getting into, you know, way of kicking off the drama. Or you can do things in a very different way. You can do things more in the the kind of, I guess, the Babylon 5 way where you say, you know, I've got this situation here and 
there is a different interplay of characters and plots that come and go. And, and kind of that's what my drama comes out of. And that's really what I'm, what I'm sort of working out. Great stuff. Okay, well, <laughs> before you go any further and say anything else about your firstborn child being a distraction to your uh, audio drama, <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll go straight into uh, what's currently happening in the Elite Four development cycle. And starting this off, I think we'll go into the feature request update that's done by Ashley on the forum. We've got three of these to go through. Uh, so we're just going to pick out the stuff that is really interesting. Uh, or that jumps off the page to us. Uh, starting with uh, in update eight, entitled To Infinity and Beyond, it's basically talking about the long-term scope of Elite Dangerous. Now, even though the game is still, as you said, 11 months away, they're actually talking about what stuff is coming in the future updates. They don't want Elite Dangerous to just be a, a one-trick pony that comes out. They want to spend a lot of time actually developing the universe and bringing out further updates uh, year on year. So... Obviously, the one that most people thought about from the Kickstarter was the planetary landings update. Now, obviously, there was a bit of a hoo-ha in the Kickstarter that we're all aware of about the fact that, obviously, in the original games, the Frontier games, you had uh, the ability to go down onto planets, plant mining machinery, collect rocks, and take them away. Now, in Elite Dangerous, they've already said that's not going to be possible from day one, but it is something that they're hoping to get out very soon afterwards. Now... In the feature requests, what they've done is they've asked the developers, and the developers said it's something that they're hoping to get released within the first year post-Elite Dangerous's launch. Um, what do you guys think about this? Is planetary landing that important that it needs to come out within the first year? For me, no. My rationale is this. For, for people who play the original Elite game, you know, they were used to just always docking at stations. There was no real, you know, I mean, it was just a big ball in the sky and for frontier as well although landing on the planets was amazing it was a major selling point of the game it it was mostly eye candy really because you were just okay you could land and and put some mining equipment there or you could land at a starport but that was about it the rest of it was just okay sitting around on a landing pad waiting for sunset and trying to impress your friends with 16-bit graphics which is kind of silly looking back at it now when they turned around and said, well, we're not going to do it in the release, it didn't bother me. And to be honest, and I think somebody would get angry with, with me for saying this, to be honest, if they actually said, you know what, we're not going to actually put it in the game, it wouldn't bother me. Yeah, I think I'd be one of the people that get angry at you straight away, John. <laughs> now, Chris, you've got more experience with Frontier than uh, than Elite. So what's your view on planetary landings? I think it's a, it's a tricky thing. I, I kind of agree with John in the sense that you know, if, if, if okay, the game in which case designed... we're just going to cut you off there and we'll talk about what I feel about planetary <laughs> no, no, landings instead. Um, no, no, it's fine. I think there, there are things that I do want to see and things that I don't want to see. Um, I don't want to see a thing like... Actually, in some respects, was even the case in Frontier. You know, you had this massive planet that was mapped in a very kind of astronomically realistic scale, but there was only one place on the entire planet that you could fly down to and have any realistic interaction with and i think that's one of the things that's difficult about having planetary landings in a game if you were going to make these planets as big as they realistically are the chances of you flying down onto it and finding something that's actually worth seeing is kind of really difficult because you know if you just think about visiting i mean one of the things they did in frontier was when you visited earth there were about five places on the planet that you could actually land and that was way more than any of the other planets in the game, just because we know as people who live on Earth, there are lots of places here. 
<laughs> and you should realistically be able to fly down to a planet like Earth. And the planet's surface is crawling with stuff to see and do. And I think that's, you know, you've almost, you're almost talking about coming down onto a planet's surface and finding more than an, than an entire game's worth of content. And I, so I think that's difficult. And I think the way games have got round it is, like I say, Frontier had these very specific starports. Freelancer had this thing where when you wanted to land on a planet, you had to basically fly up to this docking ring that kind of secretly took you off to this place that you landed at. And I personally found that very unsatisfying. The thing that I want to see in a game, the thing I've always wanted to see in a game, is to be flying along through space. You see the planet get bigger and bigger in front of you. And you actually manually, personally, fly all the way down through the atmosphere. You know, like um, zooming in on Google Maps, you see the ground before you growing and becoming more detailed. And you experience that whole flight from the edge of a solar system down to landing on a planet's surface. And that's something that I really don't think has been done in a game in a satisfactory way. Again, like Mass Effect, I really enjoyed the stuff in Mass Effect where you would actually land on the planet in like a, like a little buggy and drive around on the surface. But it was still a cheat. You were still only given two or three square miles of planet to explore. And I think just that whole idea of seeing a planet's from from space and then flying down and flying between mountains and ravines and that kind of thing. I think that would just be an amazing experience. And that's something that I'm really passionately keen about seeing. But I also I get why it's not, you know, a version one release feature. Um, and I'm I'm actually more keen for them to put it off for as long as they need to make it that amazing experience. Here, here. OK, that's interesting, because obviously I'm. I have to confess I'm on the other side of that. I thought that uh, Planetary Landing was one of the things that actually made Frontier very, very immersive. Obviously, you had this massive sandbox universe. Uh, the fact that you could fly up to a planet and you'd get the ball, and if the closer you got, the closer you got, the way you worked it, and then it changed. The gravitation effect changed so that the planet, once you got down to a certain level, it flipped <clears throat> so that you were then looking at sort of like a horizontal plane almost, and then you could go down on it. That combined with the, the missions that you got later on in terms of the reconnaissance missions where you would go and find the secret bases and then later on the nuke missions where you would then go and you know, blow, potentially blow up those secret bases, uh, they were some of the most enjoyable parts of Frontier for me, just actually going down, getting the planet to change so it went over, skimming the planets and then hovering like an angel of death above the secret base and just sort of making up all the stories in your head about what's going on down in that base, taking the photographs or in later, uh, later missions, you know, feeling this, the, the, the pang of guilt as you press that button, launched your nuclear missile and just watched the whole thing explode. Now, again, it's, as you said, 16-bit graphics, so they're never going to be phenomenal. But again, you filled, in the, you filled in the blanks with your own imagination. And again, same with the, you know, the mining rigs. You made up your own story. You were Joe Bloggs, the miner who went out and you know, staked his claim, put down the, the mining rig, which, in fairness, was a pig to do. Landing on a planet gave you your own sense of achievement, almost as much as Docking did in the original Elite. But once you did it, you could go back down, pick up your rocks and go. It just added just an extra layer of story to the whole universe. So for this one, it's not going to be 16-bit graphics. So with any luck, with the whole... Thing that Frontier Development's doing regarding procedural generation of content, I'm really, really optimistic that they're going to plough some 
time interplanetary landing so that when you go to these planets, hopefully, as Chris says, you will have the effect of going from the outer solar system straight down onto a planet. And because of the procedural generation, there will actually be things to see there. Okay, so you might recognize certain elements from one planet on another planet. But again, if it, if it does enough to do the suspension of disbelief and just let you make your own story in the same way that Frontier did and that Elite did, then I think it's going to be a phenomenal addition to the universe. Alan, what about you, mate? I think, I mean, we've already got a hint in relation to the night shots that they put out in um, the newsletter a little while ago, which looked really good. It's a tricky balance because certainly planets are one of the aspects of the game where there's actually going to be quite a lot of fiction written. So that fiction is likely to be fairly specific in relation to certain, you know, things being in certain places like, I don't know, statues or buildings or stuff. Now, because that's, you know, going to be what writers are going to feature with their characters talking to each other because they obviously can't do very many scenes between characters on spaceships because there's no artificial gravity. So they'll have to, you know, have most of the scenes will occur on planets or on space stations. Now, if you've got very specific looks and feels, then sometimes it might be that that procedural generation method is going to have to sort of be modified to make sure that particular features are incorporated. That's going to be hard. I certainly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want there to be any kind of sort of half-baked job in this. Um, and you only have to look at something like Space Engine to see how you know, a procedurally generated planetary system could be constructed. But actually, Space Engine, in some respects, it can be really good. In other respects, it can really be really boring. You know, you, you find a random place to land on a planet, and you land on it, and it's really flat. There's nothing there. So, difficult thing to balance. But again, they did that in the original game. I mean, Chris was talking about uh, Earth. And there was the Golden Gate, okay, 16-bit version, but there was the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco as a unique red bridge element. So there's nothing stopping them in this game for the planets such as Lave to go down there and actually plant some official you know, canon uh, monuments or anything that you've written in your story. They should have the ability to go and add extra features, and maybe that would be something that you know, another a role that you can take within the game. You can be a tourist in the game and go and see these unique structures around the galaxy yeah possibly i mean the only thing is though of course is that if you take the specific example laves a super earth so actually laves are a great deal bigger than a normal earth or at least it was in the previous games so what you've actually got there is you've got a very very big planet um if you have very specific places you can go and land then that could be okay but if you want to explore it, if you want to actually fly you know, in the atmosphere and, and take a trip across a, a, a great many places, then you, know, you, can, you, you say there are five places they could land on Earth. Well, everyone's going to want more, aren't they? So that's hard to deliver. Um, so I, I'm glad they're taking a bit more time. Um, it's not a deal breaker for me. I'm not you know, desperately waiting for planetary landings. I think when it when it comes through, though, it will add something tremendous to to what um, what should be a really good game already. And just to add to that, you know, as I said, it's not critical for me. That's not to say that I dislike it or that I won't enjoy it. And, and as an example of that, they did say in in this document how um, in this update that they were going to have mining outposts in Jovian atmospheres, for instance. 
like mm. Cloud City from The Empire Strikes Back. Because obviously, you you know, with a gas giant, you can't have something on the surface. But that is actually going to be a new feature. It's it's not just going to be an equivalent of the old game. It's going to be a new kind of outpost. It's going to give you a new experience um, in a planet atmosphere. So, yeah, I, sure, I'm looking forward to it. I just For me, I just never really consider it as a core part of the game, whereas I think you did, Foz. I, I certainly by the sounds of it more than you did, but... Um... But I think that there's a comment further down this document that I don't think we're necessarily going to go into in massive detail. But there's this thing about player-owned structures. And one of the things that, that I would be looking at, if I were developing a game and I was, was thinking that I wouldn't have the resources to construct huge amounts of kind of what looks like man-made structures on planets, um, if they do later down the line in a, in a first or second update give players the, the ability to kind of seed settlements... Um, which maybe grow in some sort of procedural way, even without players, you know, input. Just the idea that the, you know, that the placement of a settlement encourages people to come and they spend money on more and more structures, you know. But I would say that player-generated content would be the way to make these planets feel populated. And Minecraft is a good example. You're dropped into Minecraft, and it's this massive, massive world. And, and you playing it as a single player, there is a very limited amount that you can do. But actually, if you join mine, a Minecraft server where there are other players, within a very short period of time, you actually end up with these incredibly detailed cities that are all built by people going in and making their stamp on a shared environment. And I think you know that's how I would be looking at making these planets seem like there's a lot going on, is you let players come in post-launch and build your content for you. I'm just wondering how that would work myself in terms of what you would actually get out of it. I mean, would it be a settlement that you could you know, store your items at, or is it something that would grow and it would take a certain amount of money to keep it going? It automatically comes from your sort of ship's bank account or your character's bank account, and then eventually you end up with it having its own you know, spaceport and generating revenue for you. I mean, it sounds a bit like Sim Planet to me. Well, in, um, in another very popular space simulator called the X series. <laughs> that only you seem to have ever played. Yeah, obviously I I you know, I'm the only person that ever played it ever. They have a a player a player can buy a factory and what you can then do is a factory is a as a space orbiting platform and what you can then do is go off and send your, your freighters to go and buy raw materials and they go and bring the raw materials to the factory and the factory will churn out more advanced materials, I manufactured goods. You can sell them, sell the manufactured goods for a profit. Fairly simple system, but it means that you control a means of production of the manufactured goods, and therefore, actually, you're you're earning quite a lot more than you were doing just by trading different types of material between different planets. You know, wouldn't it be interesting if, like, because I don't think you'd want to distract players with a full SimCity type management thing. But wouldn't it be interesting if, like, I don't know how many of you guys ever played The Settlers. Not, yeah. not the board game, but the, you know, the no, no, I love the settlers. settlers. Yeah, there was this thing where you would, you would, in free play mode, you would be given this map, and you would pick a place to start your settlement, and you would kind of have to use a little bit of judgment about whether there were mountains nearby, whether there were trees, whether there was water, all that kind of thing, and then once you built your settlement, you'd send geologists off to the mountains to find out what kind of minerals were underneath. Now these procedurally generated planets. Wouldn't it be really interesting if one of the things you could do was find out what resources are, there are on a particular point in the planet and decide, like Alan says, to create a factory, but actually 
almost like a very light kind of simulation as the kind of baron of this settlement that you're setting up. You could determine the political nature of your settlement based on the raw resources. You could determine what kind of goods they create to export and a few odd things like, you know, how much you wanted to kind of um, squeeze your population for taxes and that sort of thing. And the thing that would be interesting is because obviously the overall system has a political allegiance. So you would have choices within a very limited range. So you wouldn't be able to go to like a corporate owned dictatorship or whatever and make it some sort of like fun loving weed colony. You, you would only <laughs> have a very limited range of what you could do with it. But actually you could make a little stamp on it and say, this is my settlement. These people are under my thumb. They produce Verix wall jumpers, whatever. And then that actually, and that gives each settlement a kind of slightly unique feel. Yeah, I know what you mean, but I just think there's a, there's a kind of unbelievability about the fact that the president of your colony also moonlights driving a cobra <laughs> on a milk run <laughs> between yeah. some other systems. You know, I think the the game has to be one or the other, and, and I think if it's try, if it tries to be all things to all people. I kind of like the idea of dropping your mining equipment down and, and having a kind of other unit within the universe that you need to manage. But as soon as I think you start involving people and politics, it starts to maybe get a bit too much. Well, you've got a, a specific problem here in that um, to start with, you're detracting away from the core gameplay that was the attraction of the original game, which yeah. is flying through space and trading stuff and shooting people and taking missions and, you know, the, the things that, that got everybody into Elite and then got everybody into Frontier. The second problem you have is the Dungeons & Dragons problem. Um, Dungeons & Dragons and Advanced Dungeons & Dragons builds itself as a game for people to go off and adventure together as a party and they go into, you know, wherever they go into, whatever the scenario that the, the GM comes up with. They go off and do stuff and they earn experience. And gradually they earn more and more experience. And eventually they earn enough experience to get to a level where they can buy a castle. And they can have men at arms and they can manage their castle. And at this point, the game kind of falls to bits. <laughs> because all of those trappings and all of those rewards that they're given are all statted and are all easily sort of set out for you. But they don't really offer much of an incentive or much of a flavor towards what is the original part of the game, which is some guy telling you a story that you are interacting and being a part of as a character. So they can give a backdrop, but they don't become anything you know, anything more. And, and certainly if you own all the people, then it, it kind of becomes a bit, you know, where's the interaction? So it becomes a bit difficult to, to manage the story in a slightly different way. So I think, yeah, you know, it could become a distraction if too much is taken away to create other types of game. And certainly... You know, we've got to be very careful here, or at least we, you know, the priorities have to be there, don't they? The the game that we're looking to create right now is a space simulator that allows us to do the things that we remember and throws us a few extra things that we can do too that will be very cool later on. Who knows? You know, maybe we might get into into quite a lot of uh, player constructed uh, devices and stuff, but. I think what this boils down to is ultimately what would God want with a starship. <laughs> oh dear, you really are a nerd, aren't you? <laughs> I'm like a face to stomach. 
Oh dear, moving on from what would God want with a starship, what would uh, players want with modding tools, which is the other point that was uh, covered in this feature update. A lot of the community have actually asked whether or not later in the development cycle it's going to be possible for players to generate their own content. Uh, This could be obviously trying to make ships or more likely making their own mission uh, trails. Now, it's something that the developers have said that uh, they are interested in doing, uh, but this will not be a feature that comes out for probably three, four, five updates in the future. So what do people think? I mean, is there a requirement for modding tools? I mean, I must admit, personally, I like the idea, as we've got all these talented writers involved in the franchise, wouldn't it be great to, after all the books have been released, to say to them, look, you know, go ahead and make some additional content, write some additional mission scripts or some sideline stories uh, to present to the player base. What do you guys think? Well, the only thing I'm going to say, and it's just in the context of mod, you know, thinking of the word modding, is that um, if they are going to do it, I suppose they need to do it, you know, not put it off too long. If you want to guarantee a longevity of players and a community, you kind of need to, especially in a sandbox game, you need to give them something sooner rather than later. It'd be best to give it to them at the pinnacle, you know, when you've got the most, the, the largest user base. So um, I hope they do it, and I hope they do it sooner rather than later. I think, uh, I agree with John. I think if you're going to create a game that where, where modding is a big part of it, it's got to be something that's in from day one. I have seen games where user-generated content is kind of really interesting. I mean, Little Big Planet, there was loads of really good stuff. And um, the game Infamous 2 on the PS3 uh, was really good in the sense that even as a console game, they gave you very good tools for you to be able to script your own missions. That said, I'm not convinced Elite is the game for really interesting modding uh, in a multiplayer environment. I don't think... I mean, I, I could be totally wrong. I mean, I'm not, hopefully when the game comes out, these missions that you can go on are going to be really exciting. But I get the feeling that if you allowed people to create their own missions in Elite Dangerous, there's going to be an awful lot of fly here, blow this up, fly back, go here, collect this, come back. It's going to be all those kind of missions. Um, And in terms of modding actual content, I mean, all people are really going to be interested in um, is is basically creating new spaceships. And realistically, cross-fiction porting in spaceships from other... You know, people are going to want the Enterprise. They're going to want a station that looks like Babylon 5. I mean, I did it. I mean, I used to play, I can't remember which one it was, Homeworld. I think I installed yeah. a mod for Homeworld that replaced all of the ships with models from Babylon 5. It didn't affect the game in the slightest. It just looked different. But I think it's going to be one of those things where, particularly in a multiplayer environment, you're not going to be able to see each other's modifications. And I just think, of all the things that we kind of want them to do with Elite... For me, supporting a robust modding system for this particular game, because I love modding a lot, but I think for this particular game, I just don't think it's, I don't think it'll add anything. Just to clarify, I'm actually more interested in integration and APIs with the game rather than actually modding the actual client itself, but I'll save that for another day. I think as well, you've got what Foz has said about um, sort of adding content from fiction or anything else it's that's quite interesting but you've also got to think about the idea of the metadata the idea is that you know that the game when players do stuff it affects the the larger material of the game it affects the you know the infrastructures of planets the infrastructures of, of factions and there are small tiny changes going on all the way through if you start creating player generated missions how does that affect that okay so 
other things coming out of this uh, that Frontier Developments are actually considering. Uh, one of the features that people have been very keen on requesting is the fact that you can have cooperative play on one ship, the idea of playing with your friends as part of a single crew. Uh, it's a feature that the team are keen to explore after the initial release, so we may see it a bit further down the line. Um, Chris, what's your thoughts on this, mate? I think it's a great idea. I th- there are aspects of it that you can see working, because, I mean, we all know from Frontier that you would have you know, you'd have multiple gun ports. And we've mentioned in previous podcasts about the idea of having another player manning your gun turrets. I think in practice, what this needs is it needs the other feature that they've talked about, which is this thing about getting out of your pilot seat to walk around. I personally don't think co-op on a single ship is going to be interesting for the other players unless you can walk around the inside of the ship. The reason for that is that, you know, we've said we've said this already. Elite is a game about piloting a ship around the universe. And it would be great to have members of the crew that are your friends. But realistically, in a flight simulator game, the only person who's having fun is the pilot. If you're someone that's manning a gun, you're basically staring out at space, waiting for something to fly past for long enough for you to shoot at. So I think the only way you're going to be entertained if you are part of that crew and you're not the pilot is to be able to get around, walk around, see other players. You know, we talked in the last podcast about these, you know, games that you may or may not be able to play on a station. You might be able to sit down and, and play one of these games while you're in flight. But I think if you're just tied to a post, you're not going to have fun while someone else is flying. Well, my opinion is even more extreme than that, because I think even if you can walk around the ship, you're going to get bored after a while. Um, yeah. There's only so much you can look at. And I think... You know, all this idea of you flying your ship and your mates on the turrets, it's a very romantic idea, and everyone's always thinking about combat when when they're thinking of it. But I think most of the time, your, your shipmates are going to be bored. There's not going to be enough for them to do. I mean, even when you dock, they're just going to walk around maybe um, the, the space station while you do all the interesting trading. So I, I, it just doesn't work with the current understanding and the current ethos behind Elite. So for me, it's a no. Well, I quite like it, um, but I think it will only work as a proviso if there is the ability for the ships that are of a significant size to have other ships inside them that people can decide they're bored and go and uh, get in one of them and fly off. Yeah. That's the third time you mentioned it, Alan. Is is this your final message to Frontier <laughs> Developments? They need to put it in. You, you gave me an opening, John. Sorry. <laughs> if they don't, Star Citizen will. um for those people that haven't seen i probably think that most people will have done but there is a great piece of uh, video animation done the clear sky series which is done using half-life 2 engine and also the ships from eve online it's a really really good piece of fan created work so if you put uh, clear skies into google that's how uh, i would love this uh, this particular feature to be rolled out those stories are exactly how i'd want the uh the game to be okay so moving on to update nine this is the in space no one can hear you scream the discussions around the how sounds are going to work within the universe of elite dangerous the main thing coming out of this is the fact that it has been confirmed that the music in elite dangerous will actually be a classical score it'll be an original score so none of the the old music is likely to be in there but they have said that it's going to be inspired by some of the previous games so, everybody happy with the old classical score? Nobody wants some hard punk space metal? 
Yeah, Honestly. sort of. I think I always assumed, you know, speaking under my breath here, I think I always assumed that the music in the previous game was the way it was because all of those pieces of music were out of copyright <laughs> and that they could have this score without actually... So it's kind of interesting, you know, that they're talking about investing in a in a kind of full original score because, like I say, I just I think I just kind of felt in previous games that it was, it was A, a bit of a bodge and B, a bit of a kind of nod to 2001. And um, classical music seemed to suit MIDI as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there are iconic tunes in relation to you know, to the previous games. So you've got the Blue Danube, obviously, is is what everybody remembers from Elite. But at the same time, if they're going to go with a classical score, that's lovely. They'll you know, that that will appeal to a particular cross section of gamers. Other gamers will want to put their own music in. If they want to put their own music in, then hopefully, uh, the game will. At least allow, and I, I would say that you know, you, there's very few games that you could find that wouldn't allow you to turn the music off and put your own music on in some way. Um, so hopefully the game will at least allow that. If they're choosing that uh, that they're going to have a science fiction classical score, be interesting to see who they get in to do it. It's it's a particular technique to you know to compose science fiction classical music, and it'd be interesting to see what what sort of style they go with there's, there's obviously there's quite a lot of iconic soundtracks in other games at the moment so it'd be interesting to see if it's similar to you know, to some of those or it's different and uh, and of itself what we're saying again about the you know the iconic nature of of classic tracks um that have been used in the past samuel barber in homeworld i mean that is just absolutely sends shivers down you when uh, you know when you have that sequence so yeah you know it's an incredible use so be interesting to see what it does. Well, I'm thinking if 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 the two quiet sun guys are too busy to do it, um, <laughs> just ask Vangelis. I mean, because I mean he's getting on a bit now, so it would be awesome if this was his last shout. Yeah, but Vangelis doesn't actually do classical music scoring. What Vangelis does is he does synth classical scoring, which is slightly different. I think if you were looking at someone like Thomas Bergeson or you were looking at someone like Christopher Frank, then you're... Uh, even Christopher Frank's a bit synth, because obviously he's Tangerine Dream originally, um, and then Babylon 5. Or or if you went to, you know, I mean, bud- budget no object, John Williams. Um, <laughs> you know, he was obviously probably uh, a closet elite fan anyway. <laughs> but, you know, you 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 can kind of... it's it's If they've said classical, I wonder if they mean synthesized classical or if they mean orchestral classical will they get a proper orchestra well, in if someone's going to compose it yeah i mean that's what i'm hoping is i'm hoping that you know they're going for orchestral but i was hoping they were going to kind of bring it a bit more modern and maybe engage with some of the and, the, and hence the vengelis because that would just it would be awesome it would be well, awesome not not just vengelis but something of that style well thomas bergeson um if you listen to two steps from hell I highly recommend to anybody here listen to Two Steps from Hell if you haven't. He uses dubstep. Yeah, it I'm, is classical, but there's you know there's beats from from dubstep. I was going to say, I mean, um, Daft Punk's Tron Legacy soundtrack is honestly one of the best CDs that I've bought in years. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's yeah, just that, amazing. Yeah, it's 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 tremendous, and you know you wouldn't. Having heard Daft Punk's previous work, you wouldn't have necessarily. You would think that yeah, they've they've got a really good sort of eighties lick to them that uh, they'd be good for Tron. But then when you actually listen to that score, you think, my word, you know what was in these guys is 
far beyond what we thought we were going to get. So yeah, no, I mean that's that's tremendous as well. So yeah, you know, David Broben, if you're listening, go get Daft Punk, go get Thomas Bergson, <laughs> and if neither of them are available, go get John Williams. Well, In fact, um, that would be awesome because there was a question about seeing the inside of stations, and they said, oh, you might kind of see like a shop front window. What would be great is if you have Daft Punk doing the music and then you see a window in the side of the space station. It's just these two guys on a deck just kind of bobbing their heads. <laughs> amazing. But, you know, maybe go a bit off the wall with it, you know, something a bit like John Murphy. Let somebody with a completely different idea. I was hoping that, you know, Elite Dangerous was going to be about breaking ground. In, in new ways, obviously trying to stay true to you know the concepts behind the original Elite and Frontier, but breaking ground. So breaking ground in terms of multiplayer, and hopefully you know with planetary landings in terms of procedural generation. Why not do it with music as well? Yeah, you could look at my Coldfield possibly. Um, there's quite a lot. That why are you laughing? <laughs> my Coldfield, really? Do you not like my Coldfield? Uh, why don't we just throw some Jean-Michel Jarre in there at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Okay, so moving on to the uh, the, the final feature request. This one's about Tale of All the Ages. It's the the story um, telling behind the Elite. Now, I'm sure Alan's going to have something to say, but uh, just no, me- I won't. No, <laughs> I'm I'm sulking now. <laughs> Yeah, the confirmation is, yeah, will there be, um, will there be humor in, uh, in Elite Dangerous? And obviously they've come back and said, yes, uh, they're very much big fans of humor. Uh, the original game had quite a lot of humor in it, but, uh, both Sandy and Michael have agreed that they'd quite like to see some dark humor come into the games. Now, I know we talked last week about, um, at what age we were going to sort of, uh, or what age they were going to pitch Elite Dangerous. Um, I do like the idea of the dark humor being things like, ejecting slaves and then having turning them into, uh, into fertilizer like they did in Frontier. Um, what other bits of dark humor do you think would work well with the game? Well, I, it's, it's funny because when someone said, is there going to be a sense of humor in the game? It reminds me of online dating where people say that they're looking for somebody with a good sense of humor. I would love to see one of those ads where they said, I'm looking for someone who's miserable as shit. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so is there going to be a sense of humor? Of course there is. And as you, you know, as you alluded to, there was in previous games. I'd like to see a bit more of it, as in make it a bit more explicit and maybe put it a bit more in players' faces. Don't, uh, don't ask me how dark it should be. I could make it really dark. So, moving on. Okay, so the the last point to come out of this, uh, a question that keeps on being asked to Frontier Developments in terms of what kind of role are the Thargoids going to play? And this one's been answered um, by Michael in the fact that. Thargoids obviously will be present in the universe, but they're not going to play a big role until a later update. Obviously, we've got an interview coming out with TJ, who is the writer that's responsible for writing the backstory for the Thargoids. So hopefully he can shed some light, if he's allowed, onto what that might actually be. Yeah. Alan, are you allowed, Are you going to share anything about the Thargoids? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Just checking. Okay, and that's going to leave it for the. Uh, we're going to leave it there for the feature requests and move straight on to the newsletter. We'll be right right after this. Attention, attention, Lave Station infomercial. In response to listener feedback, Lave Station presents Station Watch. The highlights of live feed from the station monitoring system. Monitor personnel, Chief of Operations John Stabler. Time, eight fifteen. Assure your standard time. 
Location, personal quarters. Okay, and uh, and we're and we're and we're back. That was uh, a response to some of the listener feedback we received on the forum about people wanting to know almost how uh, what happens behind the scenes on Lave Radio, almost a Big Brother type of insight. Uh, we'll see how we get on with that. But moving on to the newsletter this week, um, we've got the Sidewinder. This is the feature that they've got going from development of the sidewinder through into the game. We've got some information on procedure, procedural generating planets, work on the new freighters, and also the final discussion around the shield. So, Chris, you start us off. What do you reckon to the latest information on the sidewinder? Yeah, it looks really nice. Uh, I mean, obviously, by their own admission, it's partly taken from, from in-engine and then partly kind of touched up a little bit in Photoshop, which is sort of, I think, quite standard for uh, game engine shots this early in the day. I think the thing that I was most excited by was the fact they'd done like a, like a kind of ship blueprint. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the reason I was so excited about this, I realised why I was so excited. Um, when Wing Commander came out, it came with a set of four printed blueprints for each of the ships that you flew in the game. And I must have had those up on my wall for about five years. So when I saw this thing of the Sidewinder, I was like, oh my God, that's amazing! <laughs> It was an exciting moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to be fair, that's the uh, that's the bit that I've taken away from this as well. That's the that's the exciting bit for me. If for those people that have just viewed it on the standard newsletter, I highly recommend you actually double click on the pictures that come as part of that newsletter uh, to be taken to the photo bucket site to have the the high resolution imagery of that. And it just goes to show the level of detail that Frontier Development are putting into the development of these these crafts the you know the details about the ship they've written a bit of fiction around it they've obviously got the pilots federation logo approved and what the pilots federation believe uh, is the role of this ship which in this case it's going as a strong all-rounder but i would hope what? that every single ship on the you know, on the roster for elite dangerous will have some form of uh, classification blueprint like the one that's been created for this one it obviously shows you the interior of the ship shows you the storage and also Gives you a little bit of information, detail about the the story about it, and also who, you know, which corporation built it as well. What did you guys think of the procedural planet design? Obviously, we've talked about this already in the podcast in terms of um, the planetary landing feature that's coming later down the line. How does this correlate to uh, how they're actually building the planets? Looks good. Um, it. Sorry, I didn't mean to sound facetious there. Um, I am genuinely impressed with, you know, if this is all done procedurally, then this is very interesting because obviously already they've far surpassed 
what they could do in first encounters and in frontier so yeah very exciting i think i think to be fair i think what they've said in the the newsletter is that this is concept art of what they need to be able to create procedurally sure um so i don't think these are random yet i think they have created these uh, but i think it's kind of like whatever we produce randomly this is the sort of things we need sure sorry sorry yeah, what I meant to say was if they are confident that they're going to be able to do something like this procedurally, then obviously then, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. So moving from designing planets to designing freighters, this is the first opportunity we've had to see where frontier developments are taking the concept for you know, the beasts of burdens. What do people think of the various different concept arts that are being produced? I think I'm in love. <laughs> you're these, in love with the, which one particularly these are the mate. ships that i've been waiting to see i mean this i mean we've been talking a bit about the imperial korean imperial trader but i mean these are these are things of absolute beauty to me um there's one right in the slap bang in the middle of the newsletter there's this one that's kind of white and it has a fin on the top and a fin on the bottom and it looks a little bit like the imperial shuttle from star wars yeah uh, it and, reminds me of like um like a movie camera yeah, 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 like an like old, old eight track. Yeah, eight track, not an eight, eight cam. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, some of these are just. There was one person on the forums that pointed out that one of these ships. There's one that's kind of grey and a little bit flat. Uh, they were suggesting that it looked a bit like uh, the ship Slave from the uh, later series of Blake Seven, uh, which I can kind of see. Yeah, absolutely. And there's you know, there's the Imperial Star Destroyer look around some of the more triangular ones as well. The, yeah. the ones that look like uh, they could be a throwback to the old sort of anaconda or the third lance i must admit there are a few on here that i do think you know if you were squinting you could see some of the frontier ships and i can definitely see uh, the transporter in two of those i can also see the lion in there as well to be fair there's one i can squint at it looks like a toaster <laughs> <laughs> obviously the concept artist is going to love that comment john <laughs> But I think what's nice is it actually reminded me a bit of um, Independence War 2, you know, I War 2. I War 2 had this thing where every time you docked a cargo crate onto your ship, you could kind of see a physical thing. You know, there were hard points on the ships that you could attach cargo to. And one of the things that's nice about these concept images is you can see that they're thinking about where the cargo kind of slots in. Because not all these ships appear to store the cargo internally. Some of them do seem to have it as exposed external boxes. We're getting a fair amount of spaceship porn coming through these uh, these <laughs> newsletters. Um, My second favourite kind of porn. And we are we are spending a bit of time drooling over the spaceship porn, but really, it's the proof's going to be in the pudding. In that, you know, you kind of got to see them in the game or see them at least modelled and 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 tried through the engine. And so at, at this stage. You know, I kind of look at these and go, oh, that's nice, oh, that's nice. And, of course, you could look at quite a lot of them and go, well, I quite like that one. And then it doesn't appear in the game. And all you're really going to set yourself up for is, oh, uh, you know. So um, I, I I, like it. I think I think it's cool. I think it's a great feature. I think it's nice to see the areas where they're going. Beyond that, I'm waiting to see them actually fly around. Okay, and the other bit of ship porn in the newsletter this week is the Federal Fighter. Alan, what do you reckon to this, mate? It looks fantastic. Um, I really like this one. Um, it's probably the shape that does it for me. Well, to me, it looks like, um, if anybody's seen those sort of Razor gaming mice, uh, it has that sort of aesthetic. When I looked at this, I thought, oh, I'm sure I've seen a gaming mouse that looks pretty similar to that. 
Or, or some kind of shield that you'd strap to your arm, to be honest, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. It's got that kind of look, which uh, I think is quite cool. It's got something more to it than um, than some of the the other images, and um, I, I I just I think this this does at least signal a, a departure from their previous sort of methodology and and the legacy elements, and I think that certainly is there as well in the freighters actually, in that you know the sidewinder is a legacy element. The um, some of the other ships that we're going to play with are legacy elements. They have this boxy structure that uh, that comes from previous games. The Federal Fighter is absolutely nothing like what they used to do. It's maybe got some Buck Rogers to it, you know, uh, at least in part. But maybe that's just the white. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, I think it looks cool. I think it's fantastic. It'll be interesting to see how the independents come out in that mix. Because, you know, they have done the thing with the Imperials and the um, Federation where they've gone for two extremes. And it's a case of what they consider a midpoint to be for the independents. Well, it's a little bit—it's a little bit gecko, isn't it? It's a little bit gecko, a little bit viper. It's the segmentedness of it that makes mm. it. Yeah. yeah, it looks kind of like—I uh, mean, I've referred to Wipeout before, but it looked—it reminded me of the anti-grav races from Wipeout. Okay, and moving on to the very final point of the newsletter, which is the exciting in the newsletter as far as I'm concerned, and that is that our pledge extras are finally going to be shipped out. So those of us that ordered our Elite Dangerous mugs, they're going to be in the post, as are the uh, the concept prints. Anybody else order their mug? Or was it just me? It's just me, isn't it? It's just you. <laughs> because I'm hoping to get my Lave, Lave Radio mug soon. Well, you can't have too many mugs. I drink a lot of coffee. So nobody else went for the signed concept art or anything else? No. That's mad. Right, fine. <laughs> what I will say is, what I will say is, I've, between, between the last podcast and now, I have actually finally backed the game. Hooray! <laughs> I can say as well that, you know, I've having upgraded to my writer's pack that um, I've got my additional writer's pack pledges, which are all very interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Just for that, you know, world's, world's smallest crowd in the corner over there. Thank you, Jarvis. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sitting and, and, and mulling over those at the moment. So uh, it's quite interesting to see what the, the sort of the extras were and uh, being back with Foz in the DDF, which is, um, is all very interesting. And finally, for the newsletter, we've got the Elite Drabble, this week entitled The First Time by Matthew Benson. The First Time by Matthew Benson. She's there in front of me, more beautiful than I had imagined. The sunlight casting shadows, creating reflections that make me squint, but I won't take my eyes off her. She waits, watching wondering when I'll make my move. Others have been there before, but not me. Not yet. But my time will come soon, very soon. I start to edge forwards, unsure how she'll react given my reputation. She's Lave Station, and she's all I ever dreamed of. All I want to do is dock first time, safely, without scraping my Cobra Mark III across her docking bay doors. Okay, and the DDF section this week. Uh, we've got two pieces with the DDF, but we'll be... <laughs> 
up front and say that we're actually scrapping one of them because we've just had a quick look at the discussion going on at the moment about traveling between planets and Elite Dangerous and well to say that it's got complicated would be an understatement it's obviously a lot more involved in the hyperdriving between planets and the fast uh, the speeding up time and time lapses uh, going on in system that needs to be uh, discussed uh, we just had a quick look there now and there's actually 17 active polls on the subject so we're going to leave that one and uh, we're going to wait until it's a little bit more concrete before we come back and discuss it on the podcast, which just leaves us with the thing that John gets very excited and the issue of trade within Elite Dangerous. John, do you want to take this one for us? So just jumping straight into it now, the markets. Now, this is interesting straight off. You've got the usual um, trading markets on space stations where you're trading your commodities uh, and the essentials such as fuel. Um, I'd be interested to see if they start to go a little bit more in depth with requirements on ships. All you needed before was your hydrogen fuel. There was no consideration for pilots needing food or oxygen or anything like that. That'll be interesting. Uh, next up was shipyards. This kind of hints at the fact that you're going to be able to trade in other types of commodities. Um, but then again, it's not too clear. But you're going to be able to buy your new ships, your modules, and your usual ship supplies from there, such as weapons. But Will you be able to trade also in things like ships that have been made somewhere else and you're actually able to trade them as commodities? We shall see. They're referred to as commodities, but is that just the way it's written? Uh, black markets, again, really interesting. I take it this is going to be kind of the equivalent of the dodgy people on the bulletin boards back in Frontier. And, and sorry, was it in Elite as well? Dodgy uh, people? No, just Frontier. Okay. Yeah, just Frontier. Uh, dodgy people on bulletin boards. But... Um, it's nice that they're going to involve things like reputation in it, so that you need to perhaps be actually a bit of a, a bit of a wheeler and a dealer yourself, a bit dodgy, and, and build up a, a rep, you know, a rapport with these people, so that you can actually trade in these dodgy goods. Pirate bases, again, how awesome is that going to be? There's going to be, you know, as long as you can fight your way to a certain starport and. Um, there's going to be somewhere where you can trade free of worrying about being, you know, incurring fines or bounties on your head. And smuggler bases, which are purely designed for, you know, for smugglers who are, who are dealing in illicit goods. What do you think, guys? The whole pirate bases, black markets and smuggler bases, I believe they were doing those as, um, yeah, as, as almost as tradable or discoverable nav data. So you need to actually find all these places before you can actually go and dock with them. And I think that's a really exciting thing. So a system that you could be traveling backwards and forward to you know, for ages, it suddenly opens up because you've found or you've bought a piece of information that opens up a pirate base. So you've then got a new place to go within that system where you can obviously escape the law. And we know about the, the space stations scanning you. So to be able to go there and actually dock without getting scanned, so without getting all of your increased fines and bounties, I think is an awesome thing. I think as well, you, the key thing here is that if there are different types of base that you can go to, then those different types of base have to offer a very different experience. Now they have the beginnings of that here. Now hopefully they'll, you know, they'll flesh that out and and they will have uh, a very different experience through the, the different types of base that you find. Going to be interesting to see how they manage the mechanics of how does a pirate base manage to maintain its presence in a system when there is a space station and a full set of Viper police force or, or something else in the same system? You know, how do they hide? 
So it'd be interesting to see how they manage things like that. Will there be an asteroid belt around them? Will there be some sort of cloud of cover? Or will it be a particularly lawless system? So it's, you know, there are several smuggler bases in one system that you gradually find and, and, and sort of are able to trade with. So they're rivals. I don't know. Chris? It comes back to that thing about whether you want something that's a kind of realistic life simulator or whether you want something that's a bit more abstracted and plot-driven. Some of the trade stuff, it occurs to me that if you if you are going to have this metadata uh, where other players' trades kind of contribute to your world, you know, potentially even in single player, then the ones that are kind of, you know, in the previous games were marked as very clear on this planet it's a major export, on this planet it's a major import, therefore you can run between them and make a profit. It occurs to me that very quickly some of those trade routes could potentially, depending on how they do it, get traded out and that market prices get affected so much by people doing the same trade runs that effectively you're going to have to just grind and just farm these trade routes for hours just to kind of get any profit out of them. And I think that's what I really hope doesn't happen. So I don't really, in terms of all this market stuff and, you know, the illegal stuff, yeah, it's all, you know, it's all interesting in that. But, you know, in terms of how it's actually going to work in terms of an interesting living, breathing market, I, I just hope it doesn't become just a real chore because everyone's doing it. So everyone, for you to make any money, you have to do it that much harder. Well, I found that surely in games like Frontier, where everything was static, I mean, that's all it was. It was just trade runs. It was the same trade run all the time. In this one, um, because the market is in itself dynamic, for instance, you may find there's a planet which is having a famine, so you've instantly got um, a demand, which, you know, if you supply it, you can make a profit. Eventually, that famine will dry up. So that creates a completely new market, which is in the data that's going to be tradable um so there's an extra depth to it so i think this is this is instantly better than the previous games and yeah i think the idea that you can have um a kind of a lawless system where you're able to trade in in stuff more it's it's bizarre isn't it that you're in a lawless system but you can trade in something safely in terms of you're not going to get fines um and at the same time doesn't this go hand in hand with the kind of things that we've been discussing before where you can have a galaxy where the safe players remain within a certain area um using trade safe trade runs um and then you have another area for the more aggressive players on the outskirts just going into um chris's point about obviously the, the static nature of the, the markets in frontier and john what you've been saying there they've actually listed what things will actually affect the market properties and the background simulation that goes into that. So, Chris, you were saying, you know, there were certain planets that were agricultural based, so, you know, you could buy food off there. That still stays uh, the same. So, you know, if you have an agricultural planet, you know, they will supply you with food, but they in turn will then also need machinery and fertilizer, for example. So those sort of things are in the game. And also, you know, meta events, like John was saying, like conflicts and disasters, they affect commodities available and what prices you have to pay. Uh, and can be generated by player actions. And finally, the last one, player trading in the game. So what you were saying about uh, players actually doing that run, that will drive prices down if you have the same, you know, if you have a large number of players doing the same run, uh, that will also impact. So it's going to be very, very dynamic. It's been really interesting to come back after uh, a few weeks away, um, having originally had a certain amount of DDF access because of the, the writers' forum, and then obviously it was realized that I actually don't need DDF access 
to help the other writers. So I've only come back to the DDF now that my writers' packs come through. And it's been really interesting to see just how diligent and how interested so many DDF members are. The yeah. threads, I mean, I saw at the beginning that the uh, the first one was, was a bit of an explosion. Um, and then obviously I, I wasn't in the DDF. But uh, now it's it's obviously it's settled after a few months um, so that certain people are in there and other people aren't. You know, they, it's the ones that want to stay and, and feel they are contributing and feel that, you know, that, that they're being sort of useful in, in, in looking at the proposals. But um, it is interesting to see just how much people care. You know, whether you agree with them or you don't agree with them, they obviously all do care and all want to make sure that it is the kind of game they, they want to play. Attention. Attention. Lave Station infomercial. In response to listener feedback, Lave Station presents Station Watch. The highlights of live feed from the station monitoring system. Monitor personnel. Entertainment manager, Chris Jarvis. Time. 1427, Ashoria Standard Time. Location, Private Entertainment Booth. <laughs> you need a safe word. Sounds like someone having an orange inserted into them. That's going to do it for the DF this week. We're going to move on into the Fiction Diary. Alan, do you want to take us through this? Yeah, Michael this week came out with um, some more information on the Elite Pilot Federation. Now, um, this is a proposal that um, came through a, a small group of, uh, of sort of development and concept writers um, about a week prior to the to the release. Um, and we basically we looked through some of the proposal. Most of it is, is David Braben's idea of how the Elite Pilot Federation will work. Now, this stems off of a, an original point that was made I think by Dave Hughes originally, who basically said, isn't it weird that in the original game you had a set of ranks based on how many people you murdered? Um, and so basically what Frontier have done is they've gone back and they've researched it and they've thought about it and thought about, well, who is this organization? What is this organization? And actually now we've got a bigger game. How can we define this organization in a better way? And that's really what the Elite Pilot Federation is. Now, the idea behind it is that you have effectively a fraternity of people protecting each other through trade lanes and other places. And part of your membership is that, you know, you'll, you'll help people and so on and so forth. There is also this idea of an inserted box inside your spaceship that will record your actions and thereby credit you in relation to the Elite Pilot Federation. Now, we've had some discussions about that. And, you know, there have been a couple of points back to Michael about this, um, talking about, well, what if you don't want that information recorded or what if you don't want, you know, sort of stuff known about you and so on and so forth. And, you know, that's sort of a bit up in the air at the moment. But he was basically outlining the, you know, the, the system of itself, talking about the strata and structures of the Elite Pilot Federation. And we also got a clue as to why Elite 4 is called Elite Dangerous, because you have the different classifications of Elite badges in the Pilot Federation. You've got the Elite Class Pilots, you then have the deadly class pilots, and then you have the dangerous class pilots. And there was a fairly recent decision, and I say recent in you know the last couple of centuries, there was a fairly recent decision by the Elite Pilot Federation to award badges to the Elite Dangerous class because they realized they didn't have enough pilots who were accredited to assist in managing trade lanes and, uh, and looking after their members. So I think it's really interesting. Um, there was one small error 
in that um, there was a mention of uh, when Commander Jameson became elite. Um, we're actually we're tracking that at the moment at some time in the middle of the 3100s. I think Michael um, was obviously was going through quite a lot of information and said that it was about 3100 that he became elite. Well, we've got elite the game tracked down to being starting at 3125. So we're thinking that Jameson probably got to elite about 3135, maybe 3140, something around there. Anyway, Foss, isn't that your pager? Is he gone? Did he sneak out? Well, oh, yeah, he has, hasn't he? Oh. What do you reckon it was? Could be anything. Yeah, bet it's another vending machine. Attention, attention. Second technician Chris Forrester to the emergency air box on deck six. I repeat, second technician Forrester to the emergency air box on deck six. Technician Forrester, just the man, just the man. Now, we need you to get in the airlock. The what now? The airlock, Forrester, the airlock. The Remlock vendor is malfunctioning. I'm sure a quick clout with your trusty wrench will do the trick. <laughs> no time to dawdle. Come on, employ the month award in for you here. Just step this way and... Brilliant. Warning. Depressurization. Warning. Depressurization. Depressurization. Warning. Depressurization. Depressurization. Attention. Attention. Clear docking bay and launch rubbish pickup tug. I repeat. Clear docking bay and launch rubbish pickup. You're all right, guys. I'm back. Oh, where are we up to? Why? Why have you got a remlock around your neck? Oh God, it's still on. Yeah, yeah. You want to get rid of that? Community corner this week. Just let you know, we've got some special writer interviews coming up. We've got TJ, writer of Out of the Darkness, the book about the Thargoids. We have two authors from Tales of the Frontier, Lisa Wolf and Darren Gray. They're going to be joining us in the next week to talk about their stories. And John Harper, author of And Here the Wheel, has released his third episode of his Commander's Log podcast. Uh, in this episode, he discusses his novel's progress. He's got some discussions around the Writers' Forum. He's got some community gossip and a catch-up with a well-known commander. So you can catch that on iTunes or if you go to andhearthewheel.nz. Alan, what about the Writers' Forum? Anything exciting going on in there this week? Um, it's been quite animated. We're discussing some of the finer points of grounding down the uh, elite universe as a premise for, for writing. You've got a few things obviously going on continuously. We're, we're still submitting some of the drabbles, which uh, are obviously being looked through by Frontier and then are, are published as part of the newsletter. So there's quite a selection now of those that have, uh, have been put together. And Michael has been looking at um, gradually playing through and, and refining more of the guide information. It, it is... At this stage, it is becoming quite apparent that there is an awful lot of information that has to be mapped and thought about. We have a general questions thread where people basically, as they as they're going through their writing, they go through and they think about something that um, you know that they come up against, and they ask, "How does this work? 
and basically Michael tries to field an answer in relation to it. And then if he doesn't have an answer, it obviously goes on a pending pile and we, we sort of look at it and the writer tries to move on as best they can. It's a really difficult process, to be honest, because as we're developing a game alongside this fiction, it means that so much can be fluid and so much can be organic and so much can, can have to change based on the design processes. So you've actually got a bit of parallel going on here. As the writers' forum are discussing things like the, the in-system drive uh, stuff, you've got writers who are effectively trying to write scenes using those in-system drives and trying to work out what, how much time does it take me to get from here to here. And of course, if that's instantaneous, then that poses a really difficult problem for writers who are, you know, perhaps trying to have a little bit of a dialogue scene or are trying to to deal with how long you know it takes from uh, from one person to you know to go through several star systems. That's actually quite hard. You know, they they perhaps want a a, a certain amount of time you know occurring between those jumps. Um, whereas, of course, in the game, it, it can be instantaneous, or it, it can be you know, it can take less time, or at least we don't know how much time it's going to take. So that discrepancy at the moment is is a bit of a difficulty. So we're trying to resolve it. We're talking all together, and hopefully, when the DDF have concrete answers, then it'll be much easier for the writers. Is there an element that it almost doesn't matter too much? So, that makes it sound wrong, but is there an element where by you know, in in some respects, for fiction purposes, these things don't need to be completely tied up. The thing I'm thinking of, uh, like, for example, you were talking about the travel times. I'm obviously a massive Doctor Who fan, and I do the, you know, I do the, the, the Doctor Who role-playing games and, and write up some of the stuff. And one of the things I've found is there is a huge variety over Doctor Who stories, you know, from the last 50 years. There is never really any consistency about how long it takes the TARDIS to make these journeys that it makes. Sometimes they seem to talk about how they've, you know, spent a couple of days kicking around the rooms on the TARDIS waiting <laughs> to arrive. And other times, you know, in the middle of a plot, they'll just go from one place to another and it's instantaneous. And I wonder if it almost doesn't matter. I mean, with the, um, the Pokemon anime TV series, people are always commenting on how, even though Pokemon as a game has very clearly defined rules for combat. When the characters in the films and the series have Pokemon battles, they bear almost no relation to what actually happens in the game. Well, that's exactly the point. You know, the the fact that people are talking about it means that obviously it's something as an anomaly that comes out to them. At the same time, we're actually we're discussing whether we can have a a fictional contrivance. So effectively, you know, if if, if, it, if it is required that players in the game can instantaneously do stuff or that, you know, stuff happens in five minutes that, you know, would normally take an hour, would take two hours, um, you know, in, in, in sort of if it was, was within a piece of fiction, can we, you know, can we have that contrivance or do we have to construct our stories based on the exact letter of the gameplay experience? And actually that's part of the discussion at the moment. But in Frontier you basically had a time-lapse feature where you can actually see the clock in the game speeding up and, you know, minutes, hours, days uh, were taking up and you could see everything because it was beautifully mapped out, everything astronomically turned, sun turned and everything, day and night, blah, blah. Could you not just do that to solve the problem as opposed to having it, what appears to be instantaneous to the player in actual sort of on the on the game time clock speeds up? 
Or is that well, going to cause us a problem because of the multiplayer yeah, aspect? Yeah, you, you can't do that because of the multiplayer aspect in the game. Full stop. You Got just you. can't do it. So this is why there has to be a contrivance for the multiplayer aspect. And this is why it is something of an issue for the writers. So we're trying to work out what's, what's the best way to make this work so that the readers accept it and the game players accept it and the writers can carry on and write nice and easily. And it's a difficult problem. You know, Michael's obviously looking at it um, and trying to make a few decisions and uh, the writers themselves are looking at it when they come up against uh, specific issues with it. Okay, so listen to questions this week. Uh, we have a couple of questions. We actually had quite a few questions coming this week, but unfortunately we're running out of time here, so we're just going to do two. Uh, the first one comes in from Rory Scarlett. He says that I agree that if aggressive players eventually become ostracized, that they end up being able to function only in the frontier systems. The analogy to the U.S. frontier is a good one, I think. These people would be run out of town by the Rockhard Sheriff, and why couldn't this sort of thing happen in Elite Four? Could players actually be banned from systems? Alan? Well, I don't think that's on the cards. I mean, it's possible, I guess, but um, with the with the grouping setup, the way in which players who are criminals drop into the all-player group, effectively what then happens is you know, once bounties are issued, you're empowering a whole set of players to go chase them. And, of course, where are those players going to go? Well, they're going to go to try and find somewhere safe. They're going to go as far away as they can, so they'll try and go to the frontier and go to the edge of, uh, of known space because that's hopefully going to be a place where they can hide. I think that, that kind of balance works really well to, to stop uh, players who are a bit too aggressive for some of the players who maybe are a bit milder. It kind of keeps them away from each other for a, for a point and it also allows the players who are the aggressive ones, allows them effectively to build a reputation as being a bit of a sort of a wild person on the frontier. I think that, that kind of does it. I don't think necessarily banning people is um, is going to be needed because, you know, if you come back to the core system, it's more likely you're going to be shot and, and, and shot, or you're going to be found and you're going to be shot down. I mean, if, if you're just a lone gunman, you're never ever going to be a match for some of the capital ships and things like that. So you're going to, and yeah, as Alan says, there's going to be this natural progression towards the outer systems, depending on how crazy you are. Moving on, we have another question, this time from Stavros Bodini. While I've been listening to Lay Radio podcast, a question occurred to me, which I'd love to hear discussed in the show. Do you think people who have never played Elite Frontiers or have no experience with the Federation or the Empire will be at a disadvantage in the new game? I only played Elite on the Amiga and the Elite Plus on the PC, both a very, very long time ago. Chris, what do you reckon? No. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no, I think, you know, I think um, Frontier Developments, you know, are going to be thinking about this game, presumably not just in terms of the, the legions of fans that have backed it through the Kickstarter, but obviously are fans of the originals. You know, they've got to be thinking about the fact they're bringing a game to the market. Um, which is a sequel to a franchise that no one has seen in 20 years. So I think it's all going to have to be, you know, very accessible. I, and I can't remember, you know, if we were talking about this, it's, it's all starting to blow into one. I can't remember if we were talking about this in the podcast uh, or if I was talking about it in another setting. But one of the things that's interesting about backstory um, is that actually if you fill it in a bit too much, it becomes not interesting. And I think one of the things that will create this kind of sense of wonder about the game is as you're gradually unfolding these layers of history, not just the stuff that, that, that Alan and the guys are writing that's the kind of overall history, 
but actually stuff that's alluded to from previous games maybe it'll become part of a new mythology which i think can only draw new players in i don't think it'll alienate anybody where that relates to this question of somebody who's you know not played for a while well i haven't played for for a long while I, I don't think necessarily that um, anybody's going to be at a disadvantage in that regard, just as Chris has said. And I think similarly, it's it's a testimony and it will be a test of the game itself as to how it draws you in with the amount of information that is there um, and the, you know, the immersive information of, of history, campaign, backstory and other stuff and exploratory story and, you know, and defining your own story and, then learning more about the missions and so on and so forth, you know, it, it, it's effectively, it's, you've got to dive in and, you know, and immerse yourself. And I don't think necessarily that having knowledge of the previous games is going to make that, that initial swim any easier. In previous games, the, the narrative was more based around the game rather than within the game. Um, so I think that actually Elite Dangerous has a unique opportunity to embrace that. And I actually think I would rather see it that you get into the game ASAP and then discover things as you go along because there's nothing worse than when you start up a game and you've got a 20-minute cutscene. I do not want to see that. That is the worst possible thing you could do. I think one of the biggest exemplars for how you do plot revealing it in a kind of really immersive way, I mean, it's going back a few years, but I think Half-Life really nailed it in the sense that you didn't have a big cinematic introduction you viewed the whole thing from first person perspective and as you were moving around the game you witnessed events which revealed the plot and i think you could do similar things you know with elite i mean i don't know how plot heavy it's going to be some of the things we've talked about tonight from the 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 feature updates implies that there isn't going to be massive amounts of plot but i think if you could warp into a system to do a mission and you see these two ships like uh you know, like an, a, an independent ship and an imperial ship, and you kind of overhear radio chatter of these two guys arguing with each other, that's going to be very um, immersive. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a distinction to be made. I mean, there's plot in the sense of that you're being driven along a story, but then there's also, which, which I'm not particularly interested in. I mean, it's nice to have it if you're performing a mission or what, what's equivalent of a quest, it's nice to have that narrative. But also, I mean, they've already said they're not that interested in that. They want it to be a sandbox game, which I think is great. But at the same time, I think that if you want to find out more information about something, there should be a way for you to, you know, go and get that information to learn about it. Feedback and shout-outs this week. Uh, iTunes reviews uh, for the Lave Radio Show. Big thank yous to uh, the Fozzer. Uh, full disclosure, the Fozzer is my brother. He uh, left us a really nice review, as did Mansfield Matt, Pappy Kershey, JR on the cloud, Richard Harrison, and Mr. Vigo. Big thanks to those guys. We really do appreciate any reviews that we get on iTunes. I know we obviously get some feedback on the forums, but for those people that aren't on the forums, obviously the iTunes reviews are the, your way of letting us know what we're doing right and what we could do to improve. In from emails, we got an email from D.E. Philippe. Um, he's provided us with uh, really interesting 
piece of uh, of composition that that he's put together. It's really nice to get um, uh, a detailed email and also talk to somebody else who's who's writing you know, music and looking at science fiction music as well. So anyone else on the forums or elsewhere that's listening that is interested in music composition, we've obviously got um, Two Quiet Sons as well who uh, who we uh, we've featured some of their work. We'd be really interested to talk to more people who are interested in. Uh, writing some science fiction music and or have some and perhaps want us to to talk about it on uh, on the show and yeah a huge uh, thank you also for the uh, the itunes reviews um for uh, escape velocity uh, obviously i don't get the chance uh, within a drama to shout out reviews so uh, I'll, I'll do it here yeah big thanks to uh monucci maximus 599 Lavum, Balan, and mrs mcthingy uh, lovely uh, reviews there. Great to hear your feedback. Great to hear you're enjoying the show. Um, and I just hope, you know, we can keep you uh, intrigued with an exciting story and exciting developments and keep you interested, you know, as it, as it develops. And a final shout out to John Harper and his episode three of his Commander's Log podcast. You can check him out on iTunes. Just search for And Hear the Wheel or if you go to andhearthewheel.nz. And if you want to get in touch with the show, you can do at info at laveradio.com. You can search for us on Facebook, or you can catch us on Twitter, hashtag Lave Radio, or you can search for us on Google. Just put in Elite Dangerous Podcast, and we should be the top link in there as well. You can also follow Commander Thane. Um, he's got his own Facebook page, so uh, if you want any more up-to-date information about uh, the Escape Velocity adventure, then uh, you should be able to get a couple of interesting extra excerpts from what's going on in his spaceship every week. And also... A shout out to the guys at uh, Fragland. Um, I had the pleasure, weekend just gone, of going down and visiting some old friends um, at the community at fragland.com. Um, this is a, you know, a bunch of guys who've been getting together for land parties uh, for years and years uh, and years. And really, even though now land parties have kind of gone by the wayside, you know, these guys are still getting together a couple of times a year. They're still playing some great games, great camaraderie, great atmosphere. Um, there are some huge fans of Elite in there uh, and some listeners to the podcast and, you know, supporters of projects and various things on uh, Kickstarter. So just a big hello to the guys at Fragland and hope to hear more from you guys soon. OK, well, that's going to do it for this week, guys. We'll power down the Sidewinder and we'll see you next time.
To be fair, Chris, if you turn up in a dress and a pipe, I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> oh, challenge. It, would, it, would, it wouldn't be the first time this happened. Okay, well, that's going to do it for the development news this week. We're going to go straight on into the community corner. And Alan, what's been going on in the writers forum? <laughs> Sorry. Well, Foz. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Another blue Peter moment. We got a blooper. We got a blooper. It's been amazing. Let's do it again. (laughs) Which just leaves us with the thing that John gets very excited and the issue of trade within Elite Dangerous. John, do you want to take this one for us? Oh, oh, you kind of put me on the spot there. um... (laughs) I, I refuse to kirk one. my way through this. <laughs> you didn't kirk your way through the last one. No, no, but I, I well, but you did. You did give him five minutes warning. Yeah, the last to be fair, one, you did. Yeah. Rather than. Uh... And finally, for this week's newsletter is the Elite Fiction Drabble. The Elite Fiction Drabble. This one entitled "The First Time," written by blah blah blah. Who was it written by? Matthew Benson. Go back. Start again. <laughs> And finally, for the elite, and finally this week for the newsletter, the elite fiction drabble entitled "The First Time" by Matthew Chomty Bloody Benson. Follow. Just, just, just call him. Just call him Matthew Benson because that's what it says. It suddenly went very quiet. I didn't yeah, it's that profound. Uh, I don't quite know where we're going, Foz. Maybe just Foz died. <laughs> is it just us then? Oh God, is it just me and you? Have we lost uh, John? Are you there? Foz? <laughs> okay, I, that explains why I was getting absolutely no response to my point. Well, I, I was I was kind of waiting until everybody else had spoken, <laughs> but uh, you know, um, I, I assume then it's uh, it's a howl moment. Well, Chris is saying on chat, I can hear. <laughs> can't hit you mate uh, uh, not nope, totally nope. sure where John is either I'm nope, here nope. oh John's ah, there hooray, there you are. have you been there the whole time no I haven't sorry I just walked away after I um, sorry I had to go and let the cat out am I back or not no yeah I can hear you no what happened was as soon as I gave my answer I, I, obviously, I was really interested in what Chris had to say, but I had to let the cat out. So you walked off. I had to let the cat out. <laughs> oh, it was a shit point. Anyway, you can cut it. <laughs> <laughs> now, normally, I would get away with that. <laughs> Where did you go first? Me? I, I hit mute by accident on the side of my headset. <laughs> And I, I was I was sitting here sulking. So. <laughs> Still. <laughs> oh, to the Chris Jarvis show. We're just coming up to 47 minutes past 10. And it's time for the quiet zone. 